Good morning, everyone. Nice to see so many of you here joining us for worship, and we're so glad that so many more are joining us online. It's, um, it's about, it's about 25% of the congregation who are here on any one Sunday, and about 75% online. And so it's tremendously important that you remind people that uh, in the busyness of Christmas, that they remember to join us as you share on Facebook and from the website. Today, we have the conclusion of what has been for me a fascinating journey, an adventure in the scriptures, because today we read the final verses of Luke's gospel. But of course, we come to the final verses of Luke's gospel But we come to these final verses in a moment in our lives and in a moment in world history when so many lines of expectation, hope, desire, frustration all come together. So how could God take these very few verses, just three of them, four of them, forgive me, How could God take these four verses and help us to connect to the whole story of Luke? How can he help us to understand how these words are important to what appears to be the beginning of the end of the pandemic? And that beginning of the end is something for which we are enormously grateful. And likewise, how could these words at the end of the gospel, help us to connect with the words at the beginning of the gospel that help us to think again and reflect again on the story of Christmas. Well, that's been my task this week as we've had the builders in our home and uh, we've been moving. And so that's been the thing that's been really in my heart as I've considered and prayed for you through this week. I'm going to read these words to you and ask the Lord that he'll speak to us this morning. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 24 and verse 50. When Jesus had led the disciples out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Now Luke has completed his first volume. But the second volume overlaps with the first volume in the story of the ascension. And for us to understand how this, this amazing story can help us to connect all of those different strands of our life and our experience, we need to understand the context really quite carefully. You see, from the Mount of Ascension, you can gain a perspective that will allow you to see across the entire vista of Scripture. 
you'll be able from the Mount of, Trans, of, of Ascension to see the, the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll be able to see the Sermon on the Mount. You'll be able to see Sinai where God gave the commandments on the Mount. You'll be able to see Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. You'll be able to see the Ark and even on into the distance you'll be able to see the glow of paradise. But we need to gain this perspective. We need to grasp this vista. We need to be able to survey this landscape together. And so let's just make sure that we know what's happening here because Luke gives us lots of really important details. He tells us at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 9, that a cloud comes and covers Jesus and hides Jesus from their eyes. And so what we see here in Luke's gospel and what we see in Luke's account in the Acts of the Apostles come together and we see in this cinematic form Jesus raising his hands, speaking a blessing over the disciples, and as he's speaking the blessing, the cloud comes upon him, he's hidden from their sight, and he's carried upward to heaven. The cloud, of course, is an enormously important symbol. The cloud that came to symbolize God's presence to all of the people of the Bible. The cloud that came and led the children of Israel through the desert. The cloud that stood between them and the Egyptians to ensure their safety. The cloud that came down upon the tabernacle to indicate that God wanted them to stay. The cloud that came down on Mount Sinai to indicate God's presence as he spoke his words of law. The cloud that came down on the temple in Second Chronicles chapter 5 where Solomon had completed the task that his father David had given him, raising up a permanent dwelling for the Lord. But of course in the New Testament we see the cloud appear again. In each of the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, the cloud appears and it's described with a particular word, epichiazo, epichiazo. The cloud comes and epichiazo, it's a particular word, it's used in each of the accounts of the transfiguration. Jesus, remember, has led his leaders, the leaders of the, of the apostolic band, up to a mountain. It's not identified in scripture where that mountain is, maybe Mount Nebo, not far from his home in Nazareth. Jesus climbs the mountain, spends two or three days with his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and then when they're on the mountain top, a cloud comes and it epichiazo. And from the cloud, the voice of the Father speaks to the disciples 
Very similar words to the words that he spoke to Jesus at his baptism. At his baptism, you remember, as Jesus comes out of the water, the voice from heaven, as the dove descends, says, You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm very pleased. Well, on this occasion, the Father speaks from the cloud and says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm very pleased. And then he adds, listen to him. So profound was that experience for Peter that he called this the holy mountain in his second letter. So profound was this experience for John. James died early, you'll remember. So profound was this experience for John that in his reflection of what it means to listen to Jesus, he wrote down, he is the word. He is the word. In, him very, in his very self, he is the word. But this epikaiazo is an interesting word because it's a word that's used on every occasion and it, and it echoes back to the occasions in the Old Testament when the cloud descends because it's translated into English as overshadow or envelop. And there's one other place in the Bible where the same word is used. Surely, it must be intentional. Gabriel, in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will epikaiazo you. A particular word indicating that the cloud of God's presence would descend upon her, would cover her, would envelop her, would overshadow her. And in that holy moment, she would conceive and one day bear a child. And so, at the very end, as we look back through Scripture, we see the entire landscape of the Old Testament laid out before us, and we find ourselves drawn back to the very beginning, to the Christmas story. Don't you think, I mean, I'm a preacher, I've been a preacher all my adult life, and I look at the Scripture sometimes, and it just stuns me that God can do stuff like this. Don't you find it amazing? You know, it's kind of random four verses at the end of Luke and we got Christmas coming up and a pandemic that nobody's ever seen before and somehow the Lord's able to use all of that and he brings it all together and it's there for us. Amazing, isn't it? So the cloud is the context. The, the blessing is the content of what it is that Jesus is sharing at this moment and just... For a moment, think what it was like for the disciples. Jesus has given the Great Commission. That commission has been, in the words of Luke, that we'll see as we begin to study the Acts of the Apostles in the New Year. In the words of Luke, that 
that great commission is expressed in strategic terms that, that yes, they are going to be discipling all nations, but they're going to begin in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then the ends of the earth. There's a, there's a strategy that Jesus has in mind and we'll see that unfold as we study the Acts of the Apostles together. And so Jesus completes all of those things. And then the last thing that he does, the thing that he's doing when he disappears from their sight, is the last thought of Jesus and is the lingering memory of the disciples. I wonder what your lingering memory is of God. The lingering memory of the disciples was that the last thing that Jesus wanted to do was bless them. Think of that. Yes, he had some very important things to say. Yes, of course, he had a, a commission and a strategy of how to fulfill the mission. But what was the last thing that Jesus wanted to do? What was the lingering thought that he wanted in their hearts as they traveled with joy back to Jerusalem to praise God every day in the temple? What was it that was the cause of their praise? That Jesus, as his last thought, he wanted to bless them. Now there are two words for blessing in the New Testament. One is to make happy. That's the blessing that you see in the Beatitudes in places like Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. God wants to make you happy. There's nothing wrong with it. It's entirely appropriate. It's not part of the Christian life to be dull and miserable. Quite the opposite. But there is another word for blessing. Not makarios, which is to make happy, but eulogia. Eulogia. And it's a word that translates the blessing words of the Old Testament and is used with particular significance in the new. Eulogia. Jesus raised his hands on the Mount of, of Ascension as the cloud came down upon him, and it was eulogia that he offered. Eulogia is a blessing that is imparted from a blessed person to another person that they might be blessed in the same way that they are blessed. It is an impartation. It's not a wish that you're happy. It's not a, a hope that things will go well for you. It's an impartation from one person to another. And the story of impartation is an amazing story. It begins in Genesis chapter 1 and ends in Revelation chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, it says, The Lord blessed Adam and Eve. He said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, be productive, achieve great things. 
And then he gave them everything that they would ever need. So what does, so what does this impartation indicate on the part of the one who's doing the imparting? What does the impartation indicate about the one who's sharing the blessing? Simply this, that the one who gives you the blessing approves of you. Wants you to achieve great things. And imparts to you the abundance that they know. God began the process. Fathers in households were expected to continue it. Leaders of communities, rabbis and priests were expected to articulate it because they stood as surrogates for God himself. And when Jesus stands on the mountain, he is standing as the representative of the father of all who have been gathered into his household. And when he speaks the word to us, Jesus speaks the words of his father that he approves of you, that he wants you to achieve great things and that the abundance that is found in the heart of Jesus is imparted to you. Now, I think that's cool. I think there ought to be good news and then really cool news. And that's really cool news, isn't it? God approves of us, not on the basis of anything we've done, but because he's decided to approve of us because of what Jesus has done. He approves of us. He's not scowling. He's not sneering. He's smiling. He approves of you. And not only does he approve of you, he wants you to achieve all that you're destined to achieve and it's way more than you've achieved already. Because you're not dead yet. So he approves of you. He wants you to achieve great things. And he wants you to know that the abundance of the storehouses of heaven stand ready to supply your every need. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm not even sure you're allowed to say this stuff in a Baptist church. But there it is. You can't take away the meaning of a word. This is what the word means. It's eulogia. And the blessing of God, beginning at the very outset that he poured out upon Adam and Eve, is now expressed, articulated, and redeemed afresh in the work of Jesus. And the last thing he wants his disciples to hear is that all of the blessings of God are poured out and imparted to them. Isn't that great? So it connects us to the entirety of the Bible. We can see the blessing of God in Aaron and Moses and David. 
We can see the blessing of God in Abraham and Jacob, in Deborah and Esther. We can see the blessing of God in so many characters of the Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament, the fascinating thing is this, is that the word eulogia is used very selectively and by only a few writers. One is Paul and the other is Luke. Because you see, eulogia, the imparted blessing, is something that is restricted to those who are in the household of God or who are being called into the household of God. And if the intention of the writer in the New Testament is to explain to us how the people of God are extending the frontiers, then perhaps blessing is not the issue. Maybe, maybe struggle, challenge, difficulty is the issue that we need to be thinking about and reflecting on, but but. Paul, because he's writing to established communities, and Luke, because out of the Pauline team, is wanting those established communities to understand what's in the heart of Jesus. They use this word, and they use it specifically and strategically so that we know what it is that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand. And so from the the mountain of the ascension, we can see all of the scriptures speaking about blessing, but we can hear the echo of blessing in every milestone of the gospel. Mary comes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth finds that the baby leaps within her. And when the baby leaps within her to welcome the Lord that is within Mary, Elizabeth, the elder, standing as surrogate for God, speaks a blessing on Mary and on the unborn Jesus. Blessed are you. Not happy. It's not a happy thing, it's, it's, it is happy. I mean, if you're gonna know that God approves of you, that, that God's gonna cause you to do great things, then the abundance of heaven is yours to call upon, then sure you're happy, but it's way deeper and bigger than that. Elizabeth blesses Mary. Mary and Joseph, they take the baby Jesus, eight days old, for his blessing in the temple. And as they come into the temple, Simeon, who's waited his whole life for the revelation of the redemption of the people of God and Anna, who has walked the corridors of the temple daily as a prophetess. They bless Mary and Jesus and Joseph. Jesus says during his great teaching at the beginning of the gospel in Luke chapter six, make sure that when those who curse you curse you, you treat them like children of God, even if they're not as yet those who acknowledge it. Bless those who curse you. Jesus when he completes the first stage of his ministry in Galilee and is about to go on retreat with his disciples, finds that the crowds just cannot let him go. There's 5,000 heads of household. Who knows how many people were in that multitude? And he takes this, this lunch taken from a young boy 
And when he takes the bread, he blesses the bread. He breaks the bread and gives the bread. There's a moment of revelation. We've talked about it before, a revelation of who and how Jesus is functioning in the hands of the Father who has taken him and blessed him and will break him and give him for us. And of course, there's that revelation that we only saw just a couple of weeks ago when the disciples on their road to, to Emmaus see Jesus for who he is as he takes the bread and blesses it. You see, this kind of blessing, this kind of impartation, this impartation of approval, of achievement, of abundance, is not just a theme, it is a culture. It's the culture of Jesus. It's the first thought. It's the last lingering intention. It's the culture of Jesus. And so you may say, well, how do I get to be part of the culture of blessing? Well, I think to understand that, you need to go to a part of the Bible that perhaps you would not be expecting. It's a part of the Bible that Luke wrote, uh, that, that Paul wrote, who of course was the mentor of Luke. And when you go there, you'll see a, a passage that has been taught on numerous times. I've spoken on it once or twice. But generally, we don't speak about it from the point of view of the meaning of the words. Because eulogia occurs relatively infrequently in the New Testament. It's incredibly numerous in the Old Testament, but relatively infrequently. And so when it's used, it's used for particular purposes and should be counted and weighed carefully within the text. But sometimes the translators of the New Testament are so struggling with what the full gravity of the meaning of these words might be that they kind of back off and say, ah, I don't know. I don't know whether we can translate it to its full meaning. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. This is Paul in this great Corinthian correspondence that includes three letters, one of which appears to be lost to us. We have got the first and the second Corinthians. Second Corinthians is probably the third in the, in the series of letters that Paul writes to this church. And here in this letter, Second Corinthians, he has, he has laid out some very, very important teaching. And now, as he comes to the end of his letter, he wants to make sure that by the time he gets there, the thing that they promise to do, they will actually do so that he's able to function in the way that he's called to function as their leader. Verse five, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you. He's gonna send Titus and a couple of other people 
ahead of him to read the letter and get them ready. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Now, I don't know. I've looked through various different English translations and none of them translate the word eulogia correctly. Because the word or the words generous gift, that's the English translation of eulogia in this text. So this is what the passage actually says. Let me tell you what it actually says. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the blessing that you promised to impart. Then it will be an imparted blessing and not one stingily withdrawn. Isn't that interesting? It's so interesting, isn't it? That here, when Paul is talking about the need for generous giving, the word that he uses is eulogia. You see, Jesus wants us to live in a culture of blessing. He wants us to receive and to, and to give within a culture of blessing. And, and you may be sitting there at home, online, here in-house, and be asking yourself, well, I love the fact that Jesus approves of me. I love the fact that Jesus wants me to achieve great things, that, that my destiny will be fulfilled by the impartation of his blessing. I love the fact that the abundance of the storehouses of heaven set ready to be open to my needs. I love that. But to be part of a culture means that you participate in a culture. And at least one person in the building agrees with me. To be part of a culture means that you participate in a culture. Is that not correct? And to participate in a culture simply means this. That you choose to bless others with generosity. You choose to live a generous lifestyle. You choose not to be a person that stingily withdraws the opportunity to bless, but you choose because you live in the culture of Jesus, because you live in the culture of generous blessing. You choose to tell another person that you approve of them because what else can you do if God approves of you who are you to judge another? Especially if they're a member of the household of God. You bless another. You want another to achieve and to do well. And your competitive spirit only wants to spur them on to greater things. 
not to lesser things so that you win. You want them to be blessed, to achieve great things. And any abundance that God has shared with you, you want to share with them because, of course, it's not yours in the first place. You know that. So here it is. The Mount of Ascension, Jesus raising his hands to bless his disciples, the last thought in his mind, the lingering experience of the disciples as they see Jesus disappear from their sight, is that he wants to bless them. And in the blessing, he wants us to be included and gathered up into the culture of blessing. And you and I, we simply embrace that culture by a generous lifestyle. Sally and I have just moved in. People around us have been so generous and so kind. It makes us feel like we're part of a family. But we can do it to even greater extent. You've noticed that the staff have spent who knows how many countless hours working out and filling boxes for Apex Delivers. Why? Why? Because we want a culture of blessing to be evident in a world that is so lost and dark and afraid. And it gladdens my heart to hear the stories of those of you who, who want to bless the team. What a joyful thing that is. As you read into this passage, you'll understand why this hilarious giving, this, this joyful giving is so joyful because it's participating in the culture of heaven. Back in England, when it came to Christmas every year, we would rent space in the busiest shopping street in the city. And we would send as many young people who had energy to do it out into the streets and we would offer to anyone who was buying Christmas presents that we would wrap their Christmas presents for free. And we had thousands of people lining up. And we had so many people in those, in those just temporarily rented spaces to wrap those presents. And people said, where do I give the donation? And we said, we don't want the donation. Give it to one of the Christmas charities. We want you to be blessed. And the revival that took place in Sheffield was a conspiracy of kindness. A conspiracy of kindness. A word that we learned from a pastor just down the road, Steve Shogren in Cincinnati. As this conspiracy of kindness developed and grew, young people would go out with crazy ideas. They'd pray about what they should give away to people. One day, a, a young guy came back. He said, me and my, uh, me and my house church, we, we went out and we, uh, we gave away light bulbs. And, you know, I'm thinking, it's all getting a little bit edgy, you know. It's getting a little bit weirdly prophetic. Forgive me, prophets, but you, you know what I mean. It's like, wow. I said, oh, okay, good. How did that go? Thinking, you know, he's going to say, well, you know, nobody really wanted a light bulb. 
I mean, at Easter, we would take palm crosses and Easter eggs for the kids and just thousands of them be shared on the streets. And people love that. But light bulbs? So they're out on the street and they're giving away light bulbs and they're saying, just want you to be blessed. And an old lady came up. She said, how many light bulbs have you got? I said, oh, we've got bags of it. She said, well, the last one went out in my house today. And she says, I have no money to buy a light bulb. And she was a tiny lady. I mean, barely. I don't think she was four foot tall. And she said, I can't change any of the light bulbs. And my son's not around and he can't help me. And so they went to her home. They helped to tidy it up for her. And they put a light in every room. She came to church at Christmas and gave her life to the Lord. You see, there is a generous, there is a generous heart in God. There is a heart that wants to bless us. There is this kindness in the Lord that he so wants to express to the brokenness all around us. All of these folks who are so overwhelmed by circumstance right now. And not surprisingly, if there's a member of your family with COVID, I mean, I just can't imagine. The fear and the anxiety and the loss of work and the loss of income. What could the church do in such circumstances? Surely we, we need to protect ourselves. We, we need to preserve what we've got, don't we? Surely the best thing for us to do is to tough it out like everybody else and hope that the light at the end of the tunnel is not the train coming the other way. Hopefully it'll go away and then we can all get back to normal again and it'll all be great. The church can't do anything in circumstances so overwhelming as this, can we? Or maybe we could fully embrace the idea that the last words of Jesus and the lingering experience of the disciples was that Jesus wanted to bless And he wants to bless through us. And so as we prepare for Christmas, my simple question is this. When you look around, who needs blessing? The grumpy person in the coffee shop waiting in line Buy their drink. Why not? The people around you who are bowed down. You know, maybe nobody ever speaks a word of kindness to them all week. Find some way to express the generous blessing of God. That neighbor who's been locked away. Is there something you can do? Are there ways that the last thought of Jesus can be expressed in what it is that we do in this season?
Is there an amen in the building? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that these amazing truths are so so broad and so wide and so deep that they take in the whole of Scripture, and yet, Lord, they have such simple, practical application. Lord, we pray that as we live in the culture of blessing, we would, Lord, be those that know that we've been blessed to bless. And we pray this in the strong and the blessed name of Jesus. And all God's people here and online say out loud, amen. Amen.